you have your Bible, uh, open up to James chapter five, and I'm gonna read, read the text for us uh, straight through verses one through six. This is the word of the Lord from James five. Now listen, you rich people, Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Hey, welcome to church, everybody. <laughs> it's a happy, good, uplifting message way to start our day off. Let's keep reading. Verse 2. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay your workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. You know, typically when I write a sermon, I try to think of some like catchy story to tell at the beginning, but man, who needs a catchy story with a text like that? There's nothing like the image of your flesh being burned like fire to wake you up on a Sunday morning and draw you right in, right? You know, this is a, it's a challenging and tricky word to understand. Uh, James has very strong words here for a specific group of people. And uh, we're gonna try to do our best to understand what is it that James is trying to say in here. And, to do this, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't try to write some super inspirational thought and try to pull something out. Or really, I want us just to learn how to engage the word well together as a family. And so I'm going to give us three simple questions that we're going to try to answer in regards to this text. And just so you know, these three simple questions are a super helpful biblical tool as you seek to understand the word on your own. And the three questions are this. We're just going to ask the question, hey, who, who is James talking to? Who was the audience that he's addressing? And second, we're going to answer the question of, what does this text teach us about God? What do we learn about him in here? And then third, we're going to answer the question, and what is this text saying to us? Three simple questions that honestly can help you unlock many, many, many biblical passages, almost any biblical passage if you'll apply them. And so we're going to take a time to just walk through each one of these. Let's start with this first question of, who is it that James is talking to here? Who is his audience in James 5, verses 1 through 6? You know, the, the first thing that I want to draw our attention to here is that James's language here is intentionally prophetic. Now, many of us, we don't think of this as being the prophetic. You know, we think of prophecy as like this kind of feel-good word that somebody gets on a Sunday morning for another brother or sister. It's a word of encouragement. But guys, in the reality, the way that the prophetic functions is the prophetic seeks to understand the heart of God and then to point out both when we are in line with the heart of God and when we are not in line to point out when we are right there with God's heart and when there's a gap between God's heart and our own. Both of those are the way the, the prophetic functions. And so we love it, you know, man, when, when we're affirmed, when we're encouraged, hey, I see this in you, I see this as part of God, God sees you like this, we love that. But guys, the reality is sometimes the prophetic also points out the gap. And it doesn't point it out to like condemn, it points it out to draw close, to close the gap between our heart and God's heart. And, you know, right off the bat, what James is going to say, he's going he's to address a specific group of people. He says, you rich people. And then he says, weep and wail. These words are really significant because James is calling to mind the language of the Old Testament prophets. You know, these words, weep and wail, they were only used in the Greek Bible by biblical prophets. And so in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, these two words were used only by the biblical prophets. In fact, the word wail is only used by the prophets in connection with judgment. 
Now, here's why this matters, because James is writing this letter to first century believers, and you know, their Bible was the Old Testament. They did not have the New Testament that we have. When they opened the scriptures together, they were reading the, the Torah. They, they, they were reading uh, the stories of the kings. They were reading the words of the prophets. And so these words that sound really harsh to our kind of just sensitive modern American ears, uh, they weren't harsh to the earliest believers. They understood, oh, James is talking like a prophet right now. He's talking like the Old Testament prophets. And so it wasn't as harsh as maybe we would understand. In fact, the Bible was actually full of this kind of language. Now, who was he directing this prophetic kind of judgment against? And, you know, there's kind of this false narrative that, man, James just hates rich people or that the Bible hates rich people. And guys, it's really important that we understand, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about wealth. It has a lot to say about material riches. But nowhere does the Bible condemn being wealthy. Nowhere does the Bible say you are a sinner if you are wealthy. Now, what the Bible speaks into very clearly and very strongly is a word about what we do with our wealth. It is a word about what the rich do with the possessions that they have. And that's exactly what James is doing here in this passage. In fact, he's talking to a very clear group of people. There was this very real socioeconomic tension in James's day. And the tension was between what was called the, the wealthy landowners and kind of the daily laborers on that land. And James is speaking directly to the wealthy landowners. And see, the tension that was there was because, see, the, the, daily, the daily laborers, if you were a day laborer in James's day, it meant that you literally, you would go to work for a day, and at the end of that day, you would be paid for your work that day. And so what this meant, if you were a daily laborer, you often lived paycheck to paycheck. That meant something different for them than it does for us. We think paycheck to paycheck, and so often it means I live month to month or I live week to week, you know. But in James's day, if you were a daily laborer, you lived literally day to day. The money you earned at the end of that day is what would put food in the bellies of your family the next day. And I want you to hear what James says to them. Look in, in verse four, he says, you know, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Guys, these wealthy landowners, they weren't just wealthy, but there was something going on in their hearts. They were withholding payment to their daily laborers. Think about what this meant for those folks. It meant they showed up and they worked for a day, they got no money, and the next day their families had to go hungry. James is looking at the wealthy landowners and he's going, guys, this is not okay. This cannot be. This is, cannot be the way it is. You cannot live so deeply for yourself that you neglect those who make it possible for you to even have such wealth. James is speaking into the socioeconomic tension of the day because many in the church would have been these daily laborers. And we also know from James' letter that there were those in the church that were wealthy. And so now, James also goes into great detail to kind of help us understand the wealth that they had. These weren't just people that had a big bank account or a big 401k or a massive stock portfolio. No, he's going to lay out very clearly. He's going to start off and say, hey, listen, your wealth has rotted. And what he's referring there to is when he uses the word rotted, he's describing what happens to food that never gets eaten. It spoils. And so he's saying, hey, you're so wealthy, you have a massive stockpile. Your, your grain stockpile is so big that you can't even eat it all, and it is rotting before it gets to get eaten. He says, you know, moths have destroyed your clothes. Clothing was a huge sign of wealth in the first century. In fact, the average person in James's day 
typically would have had one, maybe two outfits. One outfit to wear every day. And if you had more than that, you were considered extremely wealthy. This is why in Luke chapter three, John the Baptist speaks to those who are listening to him and they say, what should we do? He says, hey, if you have two coats, keep one and give the other to somebody who doesn't have it because you've got more than you need. You have an excess, share your excess with others. And so James is looking at these wealthy landowners. He goes, man, you've got stockpiles of food. You've got more clothing than you could ever wear. And he's speaking to them about this. And then he goes even further to talk about their wealth and he points out the gold and their silver. And guys, this language is really strong because if you know anything about precious metals, you know that gold and silver take a really long time to corrode. That's what makes them precious metals. And yet James says, man, even your gold and your silver are corroding. You've got so much set aside that you can never use it to the point where it will waste. And then he begins to use really strong language to talk about that corroding. Now, these categories of wealth, these categories of wealth are really important because really what James is doing, he's just, he's remembering the words of his big brother, Jesus. You remember what Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 21, he says, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. He says, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. He says, because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. You see, what James is trying to communicate to the rich that he speaks to here He's saying, man, what could be said about them? They're not condemned simply for having riches. They're not condemned simply for their wealth. They are condemned for their sinful use of their wealth, for their sinful use of their riches. Yeah, that's why in verse 4 he says, you know, you haven't paid the wages. You have your, what would cause someone who has so much to not pay those who work their land? Is it not that their hearts are so insanely focused on me, my, and mine. Their hearts are so focused on their own, on getting everything to themselves that they were neglecting to pay those who needed it. You know, this is why verse five, James names it very clearly in verse five. He says, look, he says, uh, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. He's going to listen, the way you've lived on earth has been in luxury and in self-indulgence. You see, what James is speaking about is not wealth in and of itself. He's speaking about the posture of our hearts towards earthly possessions. The posture of our hearts towards wealth, towards money, towards belongings. And guys, it is not only the rich who are at risk of this kind of unhealthy heart posture. You know, Jesus makes this really clear. In Matthew chapter 18, he tells this story of a wealthy landowner that's a little bit different. In this story, the wealthy landowner has a servant, a day laborer, who owes him lots of money, and the wealthy landowner forgives the servant. He's merciful, right? And then the servant, the day laborer, one of his peers owes him money, and he has him thrown into prison, has no mercy on him. What Jesus is going is going, hey, this unhealthy posture of the heart toward possessions and material belongings, it can affect the rich, it can affect the middle class, it can affect those in poverty. This unhealthy heart posture towards possessions is something for us to be aware of, to be cautious of. Now, many people have, have debated, scholars have debated, you know, biblical scholars, is James talking to believers in this passage or to unbelievers? Who's he talking to? Because if he's speaking to believers, it causes a lot of concern for some people because they go, wait a minute, 
I thought you know, there's no condemnation in Jesus, and yet this verse seems to make it really clear that these wealthy people have some judgment coming their way. It doesn't seem like to leave a whole lot of room for repentance or forgiveness, but I don't think we have to make that false divide. Really, I think this word can be for believers or unbelievers. You know, the words that James used at the very beginning where he says, weep and wail. Guys, this is an invitation to repentance. He's going, guys, do you understand the posture of your heart towards belongings that that your possessions are possessing you. He's going, let that be a cause of sorrow and a cause of repentance in your heart to return to the Lord. And so who is it that James is addressing? He, he, he's addressing these wealthy landowners who had this unhealthy heart posture towards their possessions that caused them to mistreat and oppress those who worked for them. That's his audience. Now, the second question that we have to answer is, what does this text teach us about God? What, if anything, can we learn about who God is? You know, the reality is that the Bible is full of these passages where it talks about God's judgment. And man, it makes us so uncomfortable. Like, we don't, we don't really love them. In fact, we, we usually want to try to avoid these passages or read about God's wrath or God's judgment. But guys, the reality is you can't read the Bible and avoid it. You just can't. Like this idea of judgment, of God's judgment, I mean, Jesus talks about it, James talks about it, the Apostle Peter talks about it, the Apostle Paul talks about it, the Apostle John talks about it, the Old Testament prophets talk about it. It's over and over and over again throughout the whole Bible. We read this language about God's judgment. And so instead of avoiding it, the question we need to ask is, what does that tell us about God's heart? What does it tell us about his character? And I think it tells us two things. The first one is this. It tells us that God absolutely cares about injustice and oppression. God cares. Cares is almost too light of a word. God is deeply passionate about justice. He's deeply passionate about the cause of the oppressed. You know, here's, here's the thing. We, we, we really love the passages about God's love, don't we? I mean, John 3.16, it's like America's passage. Well, yeah, man, we love that. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall inherit eternal life. We know, yes, God's love. But guys, here's what you have to know is that the depth of God's love for humanity, the depth of his love for each and every person, for you, for each individual, the depth of his love, it stirs and ignites a depth of wrath against those through whom oppression would come, against anyone who would seek to mistreat or oppress any one of his children. His heart is ignited with divine wrath. Now, here's the reality. We, we understand this in human terms. I want you to imagine for a minute that if you ever saw a parent who was witnessing their own child being mistreated, Maybe a parent sees their child being teased, made fun of, or bullied, or abused. We would, we would expect that parent to have a strong, almost visceral response to their child being mistreated. And if they didn't, we would actually go, whoa, whoa, something's wrong with that parent. Like something, there's a disconnect there between their love for that child or, or there's an emotional something off in that parent. We, we expect it in a human parent for there to be this strong emotional reaction to the mistreatment of their child. Why would we expect any less from a God who chooses to call himself father? 
He looks at you and he says, you're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. Guys, God can't be the God we long for him to be without there being some form of strong reaction to wrongdoing, to injustice, to oppression. We need him to be that way. Because if he's not that way, we can't say that he's the deeply all-loving God that we need him to be. We need a God who is capable of being both. We don't have to be afraid of God's judgment, of God's justice. In fact, guys, this is why the gospel is such good news. Because although we can never measure up to not receive judgment or wrath, Jesus says, hey, I've got you. He says, I, I'll take it all for you. I'll stretch out my arms for you. First Peter 3.18, it says, Christ died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. As this is the simple simplicity of the gospel message. So don't be afraid of the passages about God's judgment. His judgment is ignited because of his deep love for humanity. So the first thing we see is that God absolutely cares about injustice. The second thing that we see about God's character is this idea that there is a day coming, collectively known throughout the scriptures as the day of the Lord where the almighty God will deliver his justice. A day is coming. You know, the day of the Lord is referenced in a variety of ways all throughout the Bible. Again, the Old Testament prophets, all the way back to, to Moses talked about it. You know, all, and coming to the New Testament, Jesus will talk about this in Matthew 24 and 25, amongst other places. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about it in almost every letter that he writes. James mentions it here. The Apostle John talks about it in the book of Revelation. It's like over and over again, there's this mention of a day, the day, the day of the Lord, when, when Christ will return and justice will be exercised on the earth. And here's what we see about this. Whenever we read about the day of the Lord, there's always kind of these two kind of, kind of threads that are connected to this idea. One of those threads is a, a message of caution, and the other is a thread, a message of comfort. And we're gonna come back to that here in just a little bit as we talk about what this text says to us. But here's what I want us to see. Who's he writing to? He's writing to wealthy landowners with an unhealthy heart posture towards their possessions to where they're mistreating those who work for them. You know, what, was, what does it tell us about God? It tells us that he cares deeply about justice and that there's a day coming when he will exercise that justice. And then our third question that we wanna answer this morning, our final question is, what is this text saying to us? What does it have to say to us as 21st century followers of Jesus living in a completely different culture? You know, I, I wanna start with just saying, I think this text says so much to us, especially in a year like 2020. You know, whether we know it or not, this idea of a God that cares about justice and a God that can deal with injustice, I think it has been the cry of the American heart for this entire year. Think, think about it. What are the issues that have plagued us this year? Man, you start with the picture of racial tension and inequality and inequity. You know, why are we protesting? Why are we rioting? Why are we crying out? It's because we long, we long for someone who can make it right. Someone who can do away with racism. Someone who can do away with injustice. It is the cry of the human heart. Make it right. Make it right. And God's going, I'm the one. I have it. I can do it. You know, I think about the pandemic. There's been all these arguments about 
how the pandemic's been handled and who's handled it well, who hasn't. I'll handle it better than you. No, I'll handle it better than you. You know, and all of us are left going, we just want someone to deal with it. You know, the cry of the human heart, it is for somebody to step in with mercy and compassion to make sure that every person receives the care that they need when they need it. It's a cry for justice. It's a cry for truth. It's a cry for compassion, a cry for the God who cares deeply about all of these things. Or think about the election. Why are we so up in arms about the election process right now and who won, who didn't? Is there something bad going on? Is there not? You know, there's all these things and, and what we're all crying for is just truth. We need someone who can come in who's objective, who can see everything for what it is and lay it bare and go, I'm the good king and I'll make all things right. This is what we long for. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm so convinced that our lack of belief in God's ability to deal with the problems of the world is one of the reasons why we as Christians get so sucked into partisan politics and division. We don't have a big enough belief that God not only can deal with it, but he will deal with it. You know, when we understand that God cares deeply about justice, deeper than you ever could, then we begin to be able to go, okay, we, we have to trust. Doesn't mean we stop acting. You know, our, it's true, our vote matters. You know, what you do with your life as an image bearer of God working for justice matters. But it really goes something like this. It's like your vote matters, but ultimately your hope in Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords matters so much more. And so how do we respond when we see injustice like that of James's day? It's like, man, man, we start by praying. We pray into it and we call out to God and then we act, we vote, we, we do whatever we need to to work for it and then we pray. And regardless of the outcome, we trust, we know that one day it will be dealt with because it is in the hands of King Jesus. You know, uh, so it says to us on a year like this, it gives us hope to know that there's a God who holds everything in his hands and regardless of the outcome of any of this, one day, one day, the day of the Lord, it will be made right. Now, remember I mentioned earlier that this idea of the day of the Lord carries with it kind of two threads of thought. One is caution and one is comfort. And I want to talk about what this one says to, to all of us this morning. What is the caution for us in this text of James 5? And what is the comfort for us? You know, I'll start with the caution, and I, I hold this just really open-handed, and I hold it out to us really as your brother, like, I, it, it's, I'm underneath this caution as well. This is not like me saying I've got it all together. No, I'm, it is speaking to my heart as well this week as I've wrestled with this text. You know, the, the, the first caution I think I see for us as believers, followers of Jesus in America, 21st century, uh, all the things that are around us, I think, you know, verse, verse 3, he says, you have hoarded, you have hoarded, <laughs> wealth in the last days. You've hoarded your wealth in the last days. You know, it's interesting, we, those of us that are watching that are in America, we, we live in the wealthiest nation in the world right now, at the wealthiest moment in the history of the world. We have more wealth collectively right now as a society than any other people group in the history of the world. Like that is a mind-blowing reality. And, and, and when we look at our culture, we have to kind of ask, like, what are we doing with such wealth? You know, it's, it's really interesting. Um, you know, I never would have guessed this, but did you know that one of the fastest growing industries in America right now is the, uh, the self-storage unit? 
the industry for self-storage unit. It's one of the fastest growing industries in the world. Then in 2018, it was a $38 billion industry. $38 billion. You know, the stat was something like this. One in 11 Americans, one in 11 Americans, pays $91, an average of $91, for space where they can store the material overflow of their American dream. This, this, is, this was the average. And, you know, I don't know if that stat applies perfectly to our church family, but if it did, just to give us some context, if that stat applied to our church family as well, it would mean that our church family is spending close to $16,000 a month to store the overflow of the stuff we don't have room for in our houses that are already packed full with other things. Now, hear me clear here. If you have a storage unit, I'm not condemning you. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not you're like making an appointment. I gotta cancel my, no, it's like, I, I'm just, I, this is the caution, right? What is it a caution? It's about the posture of our hearts towards our wealth. You know, the reality is I love our church. Like we're so generous. You guys repeatedly are so generous with your stuff. But guys, this posture of heart of being possessed by your possessions, it can catch anyone. And we've all got to be cautioned of it. You know, the reality is that we're heading into the consumer season for our culture. I mean, we're just heading into consumer season. You know, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Christmas, all these things. And I think the word of caution for us as followers of Jesus is to guard our heart against that posture that would seek to go, me, my, mine, must hold close, must hold tightly. You know, we love reading Acts 2 and Acts 4, this picture of the early church who just lived like this with their possessions. There was nobody who had need because everybody sold what they had to make sure everybody's needs were met. And guys, this is the call for our hearts, the posture towards material possession. So the caution is just guard your heart, guard your heart, especially in this season that we're coming into. But what about the comfort? What is the comfort for us in this text? And this is where we'll kind of land this morning. You know, James makes it really clear about this idea of the coming of the Lord being such a source of comfort. I won't go too deep into this because Brandon's going to be teaching on this text next week. But in verse 7, James says, Be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Verse 8, he says it again. He says, Be patient, stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. You know, the reality is that the early church, the earliest followers of Jesus, James and his contemporaries, they really believed, they lived like Jesus could return at any moment. Now, the trap we fall into as modern Christians is we look back at them and we kind of shake our heads and go, those silly fools, <laughs> they were so wrong. Jesus didn't come in their lifetime. We're 2,000 years later and he still hasn't come. And we kind of poke fun at their seemingly elementary faith. But guys, here's the reality. Here's the question I want us to ask and wrestle with this morning. What did they lose by living with such an urgency? What did they lose by living with this like fire burning in their hearts that the Lord Jesus, King of Kings, was going to return at any moment? What did they lose? You know, I would argue that they didn't lose anything. They lived with this urgency. And the urgency, it wasn't stressful. It wasn't fearful. It wasn't anxious. No, it was filled with hope. It was an urgency that was filled with peace. It was an urgency that gave them great endurance, that empowered them to stand firm. 
Guys, it was an urgency that honestly the world needs in a year like 2020. This urgency, this belief that, guys, Jesus is coming. He's coming. He will deal with the racism. He will deal with corrupt politics. He will deal with pandemics. He will deal with those living in extreme poverty and help them and comfort them and build them up. He will deal with every place in your life where you've been wronged. He will put all things right. He will bring judgment, but he will bring comfort and hope. You know, this belief and the urgency of fixing our eyes on King Jesus when he returns, it's, it's so central to the Christian faith. It's why we ended our period of prayer and fasting a few weeks ago, if you tracked with us through that week, our very last day. We spent our day talking about this ancient Aramaic word, Maranatha. I love this word. Maranatha was a beautiful word that the earliest believers shared with one another as a greeting when they saw each other. And it had three distinct meanings depending on how you used it. The first meaning of Maranatha was this, our Lord has come. It was this reminder. Just like we're getting ready to enter into Advent season in a few weeks where we remember the arrival of Jesus, Maranatha says the Lord has come. But it's not a word that simply looks behind us and goes all the good stuff's in the past. No, it's a word that says not only our Lord has come, but our Lord will come. It's a promise. It's a promise that should stir hope in our souls, especially in a year like 2020. But it's not just a reminder. It's not just a promise. It's also a prayer. It's our Lord come. Our Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Guys, this is the cry of the Christian heart longing for Jesus to come. So here in a few minutes, you know, we're going to worship a little bit more. And then we're going to take some time to take communion and, and wrestle with some questions. I'm just going to warn you, the, the questions I have for you this week, there's four of them instead of three. The slide that you're going to have with the questions, it's not quite as peeling to the eye as some of the slides usually are because there's a lot of words on it. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. When you see that slide after we worship, take time to maybe write down the questions. And if you don't get to talk about them today, take time to reflect on them throughout the week. If you're by yourself today, take some time to reflect on these questions and ask the Lord to search your heart in regards to material possessions, in regards to the returning of Jesus. I love you all so much. We're going to worship. We're going to take communion. Maranatha ethos. I love you.